I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. A happy Memorial Day to all the families and communities remembering friends and loved ones who lost their lives in service of our nation. Now, today is also the start of the final week of The Takeaway. After having been canceled by executives at WNYC Public Radio, our last show will broadcast on Friday, June 2nd. And we're grateful to all of you who've been hanging with us right up until the end. In these final days, we've been highlighting the fantastic work of our producers here on the show as part of our Producer Appreciation Weeks. And today, we're spotlighting Monica Morales-Garcia. Now, Monica is the entire West Coast contingent of Team Takeaway. She's been producing content for us every single weekday, despite 3,000 miles and a three-hour time difference from the rest of the team. What's up, Monica? Hi, Melissa. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about some of my work. Okay. And of course, just like in our editorial meetings, you're joining us via Zoom today. So what do you have for us for this show? Yeah. So today I'm sharing some stories. And I think the theme throughout what we're about to listen to is really my point of view and approach to storytelling. Ooh, I love that. What is it? All right. So I didn't go to J school. I'm not really a trained journalist like that. I got my master's degree in American studies, which is an interdisciplinary study where you study the U.S. and try to understand its past and present through the intersections of race, class, gender and sexuality. But one of the requirements of the program is to take classes outside of the discipline. So I decided to take an art class that was called video art and the moving image, you know, just like how college classes are titled. Uh, And it was this class taught by this professor who he himself was a multimedia artist and a drag queen and very into the radical and contemporary art queer scene in Los Angeles. And that was kind of fundamental in creating my voice as a producer. I was able to figure out ways to bring together my scholarly voice and my lived experiences and my personality to storytelling. And sometimes those stories are about celebrities, and other times they'll be about reproductive justice. All right, so where are we going to begin? Well, I'm going to begin with a story that aired on April 17th as Black Maternal Health Week was coming to an end. And I somehow, literally somehow, I booked the one and only Loretta Ross. And you're talking here about Loretta Ross, the MacArthur genius and one of the creators of reproductive justice theory, that Loretta Ross. Yes, yes. And she begins the story by contextualizing the moment we're in now, after Dobbs and after all of the other subsequent abortion bans across the U.S. I believe the people who are opposed to abortion, read Republicans, have been using abortion as a political football as a way to firm up their grasp on power. In other words, I always say they cheat because they can't compete. Because whenever abortion is put to the ballot, the people vote to support women's human rights. And so they cheat judicially. They made sure they appointed judges that could help them consolidate their political power. Because I don't honestly think that the people in the leadership of the Republican Party honestly care about children. Because if they did, they'd care about them once they were here. They would curb gun violence, for example. 
And so I think it's a matter of holding on to political power. And furthermore, I think you don't even understand the impact of the Dobbs decision if you don't have an intersectional analysis that includes race and gender. Because I don't believe they want more black or brown babies born. I mean, they kill the ones we have. This is about manipulating the fertility of white women. And if white women don't understand that, they're only seeing half of the picture. Whew. I know. I know. I got to say, I'm so sure I would have remembered this one. But then I realized this segment was hosted by Janae Pierre, one of our fabulous guest hosts. Yes. Thank you, Janae. And we're about to get into one of my favorite parts of the interview, where Loretta Ross calls out President Reagan. This hasn't always been a Democratic issue, right? Justice Blackman on the Supreme Court wrote the Roe decision, and he was appointed by former President Nixon. Talk to me a bit about that. Well, back then, there were pro-choice Republicans. I mean, Nixon is the president that's funded family planning. I mean, George Bush's father, Preston Bush, was on the board of Planned Parenthood. It wasn't until the 1970s when Ronald Reagan started organizing the segregationists, uh, the people opposed to women's rights, gay rights, immigration, into a coalition so he could become president in 1980, that it became verboten for there to be a pro-choice Republican, someone who supported family planning, and women's rights. So this is a fairly recent development. It has not always been that the case. You're one of the creators of what we now understand as reproductive justice theory. Could you help us understand exactly what that is? Reproductive justice is a new way of talking about reproductive politics created by 12 Black women in June of 1994 because we wanted to go beyond the limited pro-choice, pro-life binary that only focused on abortion because we do support abortion and birth control and sex education. But as Black women, we also have to fight equally hard for the right to have the children that we want to have. And once the children are here, we fight for the right to raise them in safe and healthy environments And that, of course, includes bodily autonomy, uh, the right to a gender identity. And so reproductive justice has been this transformative framework that has shown that it's about the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, the right to raise your children, and the right to control your own body. You wrote an article entitled The Color of Choice, White Supremacy and Reproductive Justice. And in that article, you argue that some women are encouraged to have children while others are discouraged. Talk about that. Well, we have always been subjected, by we, I'm saying women of color, Mm -hmm. have always been subjected to strategies of population control or what's known as eugenics. Eugenics is a white supremacist obsession with improving the white race. By definition, there's positive eugenics where they increase white, when they encourage white people to have more children and have better babies, 
And we're going to see more of that with all of this assisted reproductive technologies that's coming about. But they also have negative eugenics, where they want to prevent certain populations from having children. And that, of course, includes Black people, brown people, people who are disabled, uh, people of the wrong sexual or gender identity, etc. And we still have that kind of eugenical thinking taking place together. Because, for example, when Black women have babies, it's seen as a problem for society, either a criminal problem or an educational problem or an environmental problem. I mean, our wounds were even blamed for the mortgage crisis. And so we are always problematized. And that's why we have to fight so hard for our dignity and for our human rights. Wow. You know, as we end Black Maternal Health Week, I'm just wondering, why do Black women still, still not get the care that they need today? I think because we misdiagnosed the problem. When you use a racist analysis, you think it's a matter of genes. But when you use a behavioral analysis, then you think people are just making the wrong life choices, not, you know, controlling their weight or preventing diabetes or too sedentary or choosing to live in the wrong neighborhood. But I think there's a third explanation. And the reason that Black infant and maternal mortality has not gone down is that third explanation. And this is called weathering. Whenever your body is under a constant fight or flight reaction, where your heartbeat goes up, your heart gets enlarged, your, your blood vessels constrict, you know, you breathe faster. Your whole body is weathering the impact of all this potential harm and trauma that could come at you. Now, most times that fight or flight instinct should only be triggered when you actually are extreme, you know, experiencing extreme danger. But racism, white supremacy, sexism is creating this concussive, percussive impact on Black women's bodies, but also the bodies of people who are poor. And, and, and interesting, it's not even a matter of class. And the body is not designed to be in permanent fight or flight mode. So we are weathering all of this sociological and social harm. And so by the time we get pregnant, we're already dealing with enlarged hearts, weakened blood vessels, a whole lot of aging complications that are usually only visible in other populations that don't experience that weathering much later in life. And it's leading us to early heart attacks, early onset diabetes. Even if we live longer, we live with more disabilities. So I think it's the third explanation that was created, by the way, by a woman named Arlene Geronimus called Weathering, that we have not integrated into understanding why Black maternal mortality has gone up instead of down. So, Professor Ross, what can Black women and women of color do to avoid all of this? Well, there's things we can do, but I don't want to assume that we can individually self-help ourselves out of white supremacy. Because <laughs> 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 yeah, that's, 
that's not possible. Yeah. I mean, we do need more strategies for dealing with the micro and macro aggressions that we encounter every day. And we're always on permanent alert, particularly when you're in a situation where you don't know where that racist blow is going to come from, where that sexist blow is going to come from. So keeping our bodies in that high state of alert isn't good for them. So we can do somatic things to try to de-stress ourselves. Uh, We can certainly have stronger and more assertive conversations with our medical providers so that their medical racism doesn't get in in the way. But you really can't self-help yourself out of white supremacy. It's not just all in your head. Loretta Ross is a co-founder of Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. In 2022, she was the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship Genius Grant, and she's currently an associate professor for the study of women and gender at Smith College. Loretta, thanks so much for speaking with us today on The Takeaway. Thank you for having me on your show. All right, so our first broadcast here on the East Coast is extremely early in the morning for you out in California. So how was it listening to this that early? Oh my gosh, yeah. So it's, uh, (laughs) because I work in California, it means that I do wake up really, really early to listen to the show before our editorial meetings. And so that morning it was like, hello, white supremacy, it's 6 a.m., wake up. (laughs) which is like both cool and maybe a radical way of consuming news, but also like, you know, (laughs) maybe chill out a little bit. Yeah, like it'd be nice to have at least a cup of coffee before you have to think about eugenics. (laughs) Yeah, maybe a little sip. Monica, what are we going to listen to next? So next is a segment on how hospice care is plagued by exploitation. Okay, I remember this. We talked with Ava Kaufman, reporter at ProPublica, about her reporting that exposed the ways that a lack of oversight and regulations has made it possible for end-of-life care to become a truly lucrative industry. Yes. So it aired December of 2022 after a joint ProPublica and New Yorker expose was published, and we were lucky and got to talk to Ava. And why did you choose this story for us today? Oh, man, it was the calls in the intro. I love it when we get to include the voices of the folks who listen to us. But explain what calls in the intro means. So what the audience probably doesn't think about is that before every segment, there's an introduction at the top where producers write a small script to introduce the story and what you're about to listen to. And with this hospice story, I really felt we needed to hear people's voices and experiences because hospice, when done correctly, can be this really holistic approach to death. And it's a good thing. We need more of that. But when you do it wrong it can make an already hard time so much worse. So the calls in the intro made this one of my favorite segments because it reminds me that the work that I do, the work that we do on this show is really necessary and real. Mm. Let's take a listen. Half of Americans will die in hospice care. And that end of life care is essential to many families. 
some of you told us how it supported you through tough times. I have um, experience with hospice care uh, with both my parents. When they were going through the death process, they were professional, caring, helpful. They listened very well. And I always felt like they would be right there when we needed them. And we heard from some of you about the comfort and support for those who have exhausted all treatment options and are preparing for a final transition. Hi, my name is Scott. I am actually a hospice nurse in the state of Colorado through community care, uh, the first hospice in Colorado. And I have been a hospice nurse now for six years. And actually in the last two years, I have been specializing in making extra visits to patients that we think are in the last seven days. I feel honored to be able to help families and patients go through this process. But what began as a way to help people die with dignity has become a $22 billion industry plagued by exploitation. And some of you told us about that too. I do have experience with hospice care and it was horrific. They lied to my dad about the kind of care he was going to get. He signed the paperwork. They told him that they're not gonna kill him. And essentially over the next few days, they drugged him up with so much Benadryl, it shut down his organs. They wouldn't even give him water. I wish we never went through this process with this company and I would do anything to, to change it. It robbed my children and my partner of having the last few quality days with my dad. And I regret all of it. As always, we're so grateful to all of you who shared powerful and sometimes painful hospice stories with us. And to learn more about the contemporary realities of hospice care, I sat down with Ava Kaufman. She's a reporter at ProPublica and author of How Hospice Became a For-Profit Hustle. It's a recent collaboration with The New Yorker. What is it that makes hospice care so lucrative? So what I found in my reporting is that hospices are actually incentivized by how the Medicare benefit works to chase after, go after patients who may or may not be actually eligible for hospice. And so what we found and, and saw through over 100 lawsuits over the last two decades is that hospices are actually, you know, hustling or chasing after these patients. And the way that hospice works is that it's quite a bespoke program. So you might just have a nurse coming by, even in the best of circumstances, twice a week for 30 minutes each. Most of the care is, is still provided by the family. You're still going to be the one who is helping administer the medications, who's helping with toileting. That actually saves hospices a lot of money that most of the care is outsourced to family members. Overhead as well is, is quite low, given the fact that most care takes place at home. So hospices aren't building out facilities in the same way one would for a skilled nursing facility or a hospital. And the last thing that kind of makes hospice quite lucrative for people who are in it to seek profits is that even though to sign up for hospice, you have to have six months or less to live, there's nothing that stops hospice from recertifying you as eligible time and time again. So there are patients who stay on hospice for quite a long time. And those patients if they're stable, if they aren't requiring extra medications or higher levels of care, 
uh, can end up being a revenue stream of sorts. Right. Because if you're dealing with truly end of life care, truly end of life, it could be days, weeks, maybe, maybe months, but your client will be passing on in a way and, and out of your business. Absolutely. And part of the reason that hospice, you know, is sometimes being used for people who have longer than six months to live is we have such a lack of long-term care and elder care services in this country. And so if you're someone with an unpredictable decline, like dementia, studies have found that hospice might be all there is in terms of even just having someone come by to check on you, someone come by to help out your family member. And then of course, the flip side of that, Melissa, is that there's also people being signed up who might not be anywhere near chronically ill or disabled or in this kind of gray zone who are actually losing access to treatments that they really need because they think they're signing up just for home health care. And those stories were, were particularly horrifying to come across. Ava Kaufman, thank you so much for joining The Takeaway. Thank you so much, Melissa. All right, Monica, take us out of here. Don't go anywhere. We're going to take a pause right here, and we'll be back with more me and MHP here on The Takeaway. NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more. It's The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and we're still with Takeaway producer... Monica Morales-Garcia, talking about some of the great segments she's produced here at The Takeaway. And we've heard a lot of serious stories here. Maternal death, the exploitation of -of end-of-life care. Monica, you said we were going to have some celebrities. Thank you for reminding me, Melissa. Okay, so this next segment I wanted to share is a celebrity. I mean, would you call the first Black woman to play Glinda the Good Witch on Wicked on Broadway a celebrity? I mean, I would, but I'll also note, again, this is a segment hosted by Janae Pierre. What was going on in February? Mm, I thought we wanted to move away from serious stories. Oh, yeah. Let's just let that lie. (laughs) And let's take a listen. If you went to watch Wicked on Broadway this year, you probably witnessed the spellbinding performance of Brittany Johnson, who plays Glinda, the Good Witch. Last year around this time, Britney made history as the first black woman in that role. And a year later, Britney and Glinda are still popular. You're gonna be popular. I'll teach you the proper ploys when you talk to boys. Little ways to flirt and glance. I'll show you what shoes to wear, how to fix your hair. Everything that really counts to be popular. I'll help you be popular. Now you've been playing the role for a bit. How do those very first times playing her feel like now? Oh my goodness, that's a great question. So I I have, I've been playing the role now for almost a year to the date. And, you know, my character has grown so much over the last year. Partly, I think, because I've grown as a person over the last year. But my understanding of her 
her growth and her depth, all of her nuance, all of those things have become more intricate and have have added to to how I play her. Tell me a bit about Glinda. Who is she? Glinda is <laughs> Glinda is a, a whirlwind. She starts off as kind of a a naive, somewhat selfish young woman who honestly, I do believe is doing her best in the world. And her best is to try to make sure that she is getting ahead, mm-hmm. not in any kind of malicious way where she, you know, is trying to step on people to get ahead, just that her belief, her values at the beginning of the show are whatever can uplift me is what is good. And her values change throughout the show to prioritize friendships and to prioritize the well-being of the people that she loves to realize that what is in her best interest isn't necessarily in the best interest of those around her. Mm -hmm. And she experiences great loss and guilt as a result of that loss and has to bolster herself through all of that grief and through all of that loss to then be a leader for the people of Oz. And it is, I mean, her story, truly her character arc is so intense when you, when you really take the time to, to look at it. It's very intense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You started our conversation off talking about how you've grown with the character Talk about how Glinda has changed over time as you've played her. I mean, hopefully all all of us change every day. We're influenced by the things in our world that happen. We're changed by them. And sometimes we're, at to quote the show, we're changed for good. However you want to see that word good, if it's changed for, you know, the better, if it's changed permanently. And I think, especially post-pandemic, our world is so different and the ways that we we interact with each other is so different. And so even on that level, my portrayal of her has changed. Mm-hmm. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, <Okay. laughs> totally. I want to go back to the beginning for you, at least. What was the first Broadway show you saw that made you feel like, wow, this is for me. I, I want to do this. The first show that I saw on Broadway, actually, like actually in New York on Broadway, was 110 in the Shade huh. with Audra McDonald. Mm-hmm. The the entire cast, I mean, I mean, it was a brilliant show, first of all. It was amazing to see kind of an older classic musical. I didn't I didn't really have a breadth of knowledge about musical theater at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of went in blind. I just I really liked Audra McDonald. My mom and I are pretty obsessed with Audra McDonald. And so we we wanted to see her on Broadway. So because it was my first show, I didn't really have a lot of context for what casts usually look like. And that cast was completely mixed up. It was like multicultural, diverse. And because it was my first show, I I didn't really think anything of that, except that I loved seeing somebody who looked like me play a title character and her voice. Oh, my goodness. It, I, I don't know if if you've ever heard Audra McDonald sing. Oh, yes, but it, absolutely. Like, yeah. 
it's like angels singing. And so <laughs> to hear somebody singing and especially a black woman singing in a way that I felt my voice lent itself more to, at least comfortably, you know, I, I can sing in all different kinds of styles, mm-hmm. but I, I really had never been asked to sing that way. And it was encouraging for me to see someone like Audra McDonald on Broadway leading a show able to to sing like that. Yeah, yeah. Now, Valentine's Day is coming up, and I understand that February 14th has historically been an incredibly good day for you. <laughs> it has. Tell me why. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, February 14th was the my debut day as Glinda when I took over full time. Okay, yeah. The 14th was also the day that I played Anne Fontaine on the same day when I was in Les Mis on Broadway. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say something about some handsome man, but your Valentine's days are great. Well, I don't know. Valentine's Day is yet to come. We'll see what happens. <laughs> nice. Last year when I when I made my debut, it was it, the theater truly i mean it, it was it felt like it was full of love not 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 because of valentine's day but just because <laughs> um just cuz i i felt so supported it felt like there were so so many people in the audience who were just excited to be there and excited to to witness history and to to support me on that journey mm-hmm. and Yeah, I I, I still remember it vividly. (laughs) Brittany Johnson, Broadway actor, artist, and the first Black woman to play the title role of Glinda in Wicked. Brittany, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Melissa, can I tell you a secret? I mean, we're on air, but sure. I've never seen Wicked. (laughs) Oh, I'm getting you tickets. So, Monica, tell us about what we're about to listen to. Yeah, so we're about to listen to really one of my all-time favorite pieces I produce for The Takeaway. The only thing is that it is sort of funky in terms of production because the interview was recorded again by Janae Pierre. But the morning we aired the episode, Tracy Hunt was hosting. All right, that is a hectic day. I can't remember exactly what was happening, but amid the production chaos, I really made one of my favorite segments. So why do you think that is? I just used so much archival sound and produced really the heck out of that piece that literally nothing, no one could stop it from being so good. Have you told us what this beautiful, magnificent, bulletproof segment even is? (laughs) I don't think I have. (laughs) It's a profile on the one and only Kayla Monteroso Mejia. And I know you're an Abbott fan, so I know you know her. I can't wait to listen. This is The Takeaway. I'm Tracy Hunt, in for Melissa Harris-Perry. And I hope we're in agreement about Maria Sophia, because we watched her video. Uh-huh. And we didn't like it. Yeah. It happens. 
We loved it. <laughs> I mean, we flipped for it. Oh, She's so incredible. Kayla Monterosa Mejia cemented her stardom the moment she stole scenes on the HBO comedy Curb Your Enthusiasm. You want bald children with no brains? Go right ahead. I don't have to listen to you. If I want to see Larry, oh, I will see Larry. Let's just take five. (laughs) The 25-year-old made a huge impression and even got the attention of Quinta Brenton, which landed Kayla the role as the worst teacher's aide at Abbott Elementary. Ashley Garcia, Frankfurt, Philly, old enough to know better, young enough to sheesh. And I'm here at Abbott as an aide because I'm helpful as hell. That's why I've been at four schools in four months because everyone wants a piece. But now Kayla is taking the lead. Hi, I'm Kayla Monterroso Mejia, and I'm starring in a new Netflix show called Free Ridge. Kayla stars as Gloria, a high school girl with the weight of the world on her shoulders. Have you seen the box with all my baby stuff? I'm trying to find the silver spoon Tia Maria gave me. I think I could get a good chunk of change for it with silver being so valuable these days. Like maybe even $150. More like $310. Really, you think? That's what I got for it. You sold it? Janae Pierre spoke with Kayla for the takeaway. Thanks for being here. We are elated to have you. Thank you. I'm so excited. This is so cool. I don't think I've ever done something like this before. (laughs) I'm excited. I want to ask about your time on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Could you tell me who Maria Sophia is and talk about how you landed that role? Oh, my gosh. Yes. She changed my life completely and everyone at Curb Your Enthusiasm. But she's this very loud, confident woman who doesn't really uh, understand social cues or or processes things normally. (laughs) Okay, Maria Sophia. I'm going to record this and pretend like this is not even here. Okay. 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 I wanted to talk to you about that David boy. Larry. Yeah, that's his name, Larry David. Well, what about him? I feel like you're being seductive right now. You're talking to your mother. Are are we not close? In real life, do you ever talk to your mother like that? No, I don't seduce my mom. What is wrong with you? God. Uh, So she's a little out there, you know? But... Oh, my gosh. That that whole experience has been one of the best things I think that's ever happened to me, and I feel so grateful. There's a lot of improv on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Was that something that you were excited about? Hell no. <laughs> is, am I allowed to say that? Is, is, I'm so sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I was not. Oh, my goodness. I think maybe later on in life I'll be excited for that type of one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I take a lot of comfort in being prepared. And when you have lines, you you know, like point A and point B, and you, you just know where it's going to end, how it's going to start. Everything else is sort of unpredicted. But for the most part, you have like a roadmap. Mm-hmm. And that's not <laughs> that an improv. That doesn't happen. So I was super nervous. I'm not going to lie. I think it's the, the worst I've ever felt about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there is there any scene that sticks out? You know what? The dance scene that I do when you first meet my character, that sticks out all the time. <laughs> I mean, she also dances? Yeah. Show me how you dance, baby. Oh, okay. No, no, yeah, 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 it's, it's, I mean, okay, go so one, two, three. Uh. <laughs> re- re- rewind. That's very good. Very good. Bravo. Yes, excellent. Good job. Very good. That's not the whole thing. There's a flip Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure, yeah. I have a phenomenal partner in that season is Marcus Ray, who plays my dad. And he, first of all, just an incredible person, but also an amazing 
actor and improviser. And that was all his idea. That was completely in the moment. And it was so much fun. And I think it helped shape the character. But he was just like, yeah, my daughter dances. And I was like, okay. Like, <laughs> then I just I just got to follow him. Like, you know. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, okay. But that that was that sticks out in my head all the time. Because it so, it's such a fun scene. And I think it really helped shape the character for the rest of the season. I was completely joked out when I saw you on Abbott Elementary, teaching children <laughs> about their body, yaddy, 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 yaddy. Yeah. <laughs> How y'all doing? Don't worry about me. I'm, I'm not even here. I'm okay. here to teach you about the human so, um, body, yaddy, 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 bones, blood, meat. Okay. Yeah. Hey. Hi, my class. You guys would know this if you did your homework. My brother was a huge fan of Abbott Elementary. And I remember when I booked Curb, he told me, he's like, oh, you peaked, girl. Like, <laughs> enjoy this because you're never going to do. Like, this is like, you know, you kind of, you you started early. And so I was like, okay, well, that's not nice. <laughs> but sure enough, when I got Abbott, he was like, you know what I said that you peaked? I lied. Exactly. And I remember. <laughs> yeah. Kayla Monterosa Mejia, actor, artist, and the star of Netflix's Free Ridge. Kayla, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This was actually really fun. Thank you. Now, we're on the last segment. So, Monica, what have you got? This is another piece that aired in February. And it was also guest hosted by Janae. All right. At this point, I'm totally taking this personally. <laughs> no, it was just that in February, right before we found out that our show was being canceled, I was really starting to feel my rhythm as a producer here on the show. Hmm, say more about that. So working on The Takeaway was my first time working in daily news. I'd worked in long form narrative audio and I didn't realize how much time you have to create and edit and think, which is like, a dream, really. But at Daily News, it's not like that. It, there's no time to be precious. There's no time to be thinking and dreamy with your production. It really is just like, you need to get it. You need to go. So I think in February, it was just the month where I started to feel like I better understood how to really make magic with the limited time that we have. Uh, I kind of hate that you were having those realizations just as we found out that the show was going to be over. I know, it's kind of crazy how that happens, huh? <laughs> now, speaking of what happens, what is about to happen in this next segment? Well, do you remember when Bad Bunny was speaking and singing in, quote, non-English at the Grammys this year? I do. So let's take a listen. On Sunday night, the Grammys were opened by the one and only Bad Bunny. And while Bad Bunny gave a performance full of Puerto Rican culture and history, with dancers dressed in colorful skirts and big caricature heads of Puerto Rican icons like baseball player Roberto Clemente and musicians Tego Calderon and Andy Montañez, Grammy viewers who were using closed captions while watching the live telecast 
were not shown the lyrics or transcription of what Bad Bunny was singing. Instead, the captions read, Singing in non-English. CBS has since fixed the issue of captions, but we wanted to know more about what it meant to sing and talk in non-English. Joining us now is Yaimar Bonilla, professor in the Department of Africana, Puerto Rican, and Latino Studies at Hunter College and director of the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at CUNY. Yaimar, thanks for joining us. Anytime. Thanks for having me. So how do the, and I'm using air quotes here, non-English captions reflect on the Grammys? Well, I think the audience was disappointed. Apparently, this is the standard practice when there's not a multilingual person captioning to just write non-English if that's what they hear. But folks felt like, okay, you're making history here for the first time. You have a Spanish language act nominated for album of the year. This is the largest streaming artist in the world. You know that he sings and speaks only in Spanish. Do better, Grammys. What makes an artist like Bad Bunny so important to Puerto Ricans and Latinos in general? Well, I think it's precisely his defiance in these spaces. The idea that this was supposed to be an English-speaking space, something equivalent to white public space, where everyone there is expected to speak and understand only one language. And he comes and he disrupts that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, at this point, it's an expected disruption, but still it feels Uh, It feels subversive. It feels like an act of resistance to say, "Okay, I'm here and I am speaking non-English. And I think that's why, aside from the anger that people felt, it also went viral because I I, I tweeted out that it was kind of a mood, you know, the way that that his image was reflected there with the captions, non speaking, non-English, singing in non-English. And he himself posted that image on his Instagram as if to as, as if it was a point of pride for him. People from the Caribbean speak Spanish with a different accent than others in Latin America. Can you talk a bit about the difference in the accent? You know, some folks said, oh, you know, Spanish is is a colonial language. It's a European language. And yes, that's true. There is there is Spanish that's spoken in Spain. But the kind of Spanish that Bad Bunny or as we call him, Benito, um, speaks is is not the, the Spanish of the, you know, Royal Academy or even the Spanish of the kind of standardized dialect of Telemundo. Part of the tension here that came up um, after Bad Bunny's Grammy performance here seems to be about race. Are those two things connected at all? Absolutely. You know, I think the controversy that emerged about him being titled, you know, non-English might have not happened, or at least not in the same way, if it would have been someone speaking French or speaking Italian. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a way in which Spanish in particular is racialized. It's associated with Latino populations who are themselves racialized and who are often thought to be speaking non-English, no matter what language they speak, even when they're speaking English. And You know, in the case of someone coming from a U.S. colony, this is a particularly political stance. It's a way of saying, I refuse this insistence that I assimilate. And, you know, and Puerto Ricans have rejected assimilation for over a century now, right? The U.S. tried to change the entire name of the island to Puerto Rico and to impose English 
but there's been a legacy of resistance. And some of the figures that, you know, pushed uh, on that resistance were represented uh, by the puppets that were dancing with him and the entry of the Grammys. Mm-hmm. You direct the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College. And I'm told that coming up in the spring, there will be a symposium d- dedicated to Bad Bunny. Tell us more about that. It's called Thinking with Bad Bunny, uh, Cultural Politics and the Future of Puerto Rico. And we want to do is to precisely think and theorize with Bad Bunny. It's time to recognize the historic nature of his celebrity, but also what he opens up for us to think about regarding race, um, the racialization of Latinos, but also colorism among Latinos, um, because we do have to recognize that even though he's racialized by uh, the U.S. media and 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 is seen as being a racial, a particular kind of racial subject because of the language that he speaks and sings in. He's still a light-skinned artist within this genre. So we also do want to take a critical stance and think about what has facilitated his ability to become such an icon. Yaimar Bonilla, professor in the Department of Africana, Puerto Rican, and Latino Studies at Hunter College and director of the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at CUNY. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. All right, that's today's show, y'all. But before I go, I just got a few words to say to you, Monica. Now, you joined Team Takeaway as a temporary producer. But during your time with us, you have found a permanent place in all of our hearts and minds. You brought us so many great stories on culture, race, politics, life. And more than once, you hunted, searched, fretted, and vetted until you found the perfect guest. And every single thing you wrote had a very distinct flair and point of view. Oh, thank you so much, Melissa. And if I could just say, it has been an absolute privilege and honor to work with you. I still can't believe that I've been so privileged to walk through doors that you've opened um, for me and for so many other journalists looking to do real and informative work. So thank you, MHP, for letting me be a part of your legacy. Oh, thank you so much. But let me just give you this. Since you were really hitting your stride earlier this year when our amazing guest host, Janae Pierre, was on the mic, I just had to give Janae a chance to weigh in as well. Hey, Janae. Thanks, Melissa. I absolutely love you and the entire Takeaway team. It's been an honor filling in for you here and there. And I want to add a quick note about the lovely Monica Morales-Garcia. She's an outstanding producer and overall journalist. She can be serious sometimes, but her personality shines so bright. Plus, she's the only person I'd want to talk to about pop culture and reality television. You're a star, Monica. Shine bright like a diamond. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. The Takeaway.